If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator, a weekly show for marketing executives who need to accelerate customer-centric thinking and digital maturity. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe of Ambition Data. This show features innovative guests who share quick wins on how to improve your bottom line while creating happier, more valuable customers. Ready to accelerate? Let's go. Welcome everyone. Today's show is about the transformational change a company can achieve through the adoption of CLV. And to help me discuss this topic is Zach Anderson. Zach is the CAO and SVP at EA, and he is responsible for leading customer insights, UX research, data science, studio analytics, and marketing analytics for electronic arts. Now, I have to say, if I were going to create a size to power ratio for titles, this would be it because you basically got a title that's an eight-letter acronym for I Get Stuff Done. Zach, welcome to the show. I would add I Get Stuff Done with Data. Uh, (laughs) Exactly. Um, Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. It's so great to have you. I I know we've met before. We've talked a lot over the years about this topic, and you've always been an ardent supporter of CLV, but I'm not sure our guests really understand a lot, or the people listening to the show really understand a lot about your background and how you were originally drawn into customer lifetime value. Yeah. I mean, I'll put it a short way and then give you a little longer answer, but I think I've just always been a student of human behavior. I love the study of trying to figure out why people do things. So I did my undergraduate degree in political science and communications, trying to understand policy. I then went to UCLA to do econ and political science and study game theory, which is a great quantitative way to try to understand human behavior. You know, I got to study with Lloyd Shapley, who won the Nobel Prize for a number of things. But one of the things that he and I worked on in particular was on various power relationships within groups and using a game theoretic model to do that. So my background has really been about studying and adding quantitative methods to study human behavior. Wow, that's fantastic. So that's a great way to start. And I can see where that intense curiosity might have led you closer to, you know, how can I quantify human behavior that's related to electronic arts activity? Yeah, EA hired me to be a demand planner, which is uh, yet another study of human behavior, just trying to predict who's going to buy what when so that we could ship enough discs. (laughs) And so I kind of started there. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And did you start with EA or did you have work in the academic field at all? Where did you come from uh, yeah, before I mean, you? Yeah, when I was working on my graduate work, I decided that I probably wasn't going to be a successful academic, I would say. And so I went right after I finished up at UCLA, I went on and actually joined a private investment company called the Fremont Group and worked for them in a number of different roles, but ultimately as a corporate economist. And from there, I went to Nissan 
and became the corporate economist for North America for Nissan Automotive. So it was funny at that time, data scientist wasn't really a phrase then. People weren't looking at disaggregated data. So I took my microeconomics background and figured out how to translate it into macro. And so I was really a macroeconomist forecasting the U.S. economy and the impact on trade and gas prices, all the things that an auto company would care about. That's how I started at Nissan. Ah, got it. That's why you could read those papers that came out from Wharton and and Pete Fader with such ease. (laughs) Yeah, but it, it was interesting because even at Nissan, I found very quickly that there was a real opportunity to understand at a deeper level from the micro side of economics and from marketing and what we now call data science, that there was more depth there that Nissan wasn't mining yet. I actually pitched Carlos Ghosn and my boss at the time to start a group called Nissan Quant. And I took that on and started that group. And we started doing kind of crazy things. Like actually, we were doing lifetime value models back then for the auto companies, trying to understand what the value of a new customer was for Nissan. And value at risk modeling was the other thing more on the financial side in terms of how big and how flexible to build our new plants. So we were looking and we were building those all up with detailed models of really detailed human behavior. And in particular, actually, a lot of work on pricing and trying to understand pricing using logit models and other actually mixed random effect logit models at the time which was the kind of art de vogue at the time for doing that kind of modeling. Even at Nissan, I kind of, like I saw this idea that there's this, customers are different. Disaggregating the customer data would help the company. And we did a lot of, a lot of my early thinking was exploration that I got to do at Nissan with a very small team, but with very high visibility and ability to kind of go work on crazy projects. That was really fun. So it was my first foray. Actually, is an interesting lead into then going to, I left Nissan and ended up going to J.D. Power and Associates. There I ran the consulting side of the PIN group, and that was full of modelers and economists building disaggregate level pricing models. And so those two things combined, kind of running the big group at J.D. Power, but also all the early thinking that I had done inside of a big company to kind of uncover the value of disaggregate data is what set me up really well for when I showed up at EA and they thought they were hiring somebody to run demand planning. But I, from day one, had the idea that they had a lot more data than they knew what to do with and that we could start to figure out some other ways to utilize that data to understand the behavior of, of people and, and make better games and hopefully also make better financial decisions for the company. Well, that's exactly where I want to go next. I want to dive into the early days of CLV at Electronic Arts. But before we do that, I just want to call out when you're saying disaggregation of customer data, sometimes people don't yeah. relate to that group. And and I like to think about it sometimes as heterogeneity. Do you think about it that way, too? Or do you think about it in more oh, yeah. complex I'm, words? Yes, I think people at EA know me for using heterogeneity as a word. They think it's my kind of 10 cent word, but I use it all the time. I, I mean, it's actually it kind of relates to your question about the early days of CLV at EA. So EA has gone through a transformation, which is a really interesting transformation because the transformation has happened along with shifts. The shifts in the company culture and the way it looks at its products have also in parallel shifted with the data that we use to understand what's happening in the marketplace and with our customers. So I might slip back and forth. We usually say player here. I'm going to try to use customer, but if I say customer or player, it's really the same thing. So when I showed up at EA, the company was really focused on being 
a sell-in company. Actually, it was just starting to transition. but And that means that what we really cared about at the highest levels of the company was obviously there's a group of people making the games and they cared about making the games, but the company was really heavily focused on selling games in to Walmart Mm -hmm. and to Best Buy and Target and Carrefour and Europe. And our goal was, you know, the way we got paid was for those companies to buy our games and then sell them to the customers. But ultimately what we really cared about was getting discs into the stores. A B2B2C play. Yeah, a B2B2C. And we were just really focused on the B2B part of that, to be Mm -hmm. honest. And that was kind of the early success of EA as a company was on that B2B side. It had a huge sales and distribution and marketing powerhouse back in the days of the PS2. And that's what made the company what it was by the time I joined, which was right at the beginning of the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3 days. Mm -hmm. And so we were starting to make a transition from sell in what we could sell into Walmart to worrying a little more about what we could sell through. So ultimately, Walmart doesn't buy more games if they have too much sitting on the shelf. So if we sell it through, then that's ultimately our job, too, is to help Walmart sell the games out of the store by marketing them and making the right games that people will buy. And so we were shifting when I got here from sell in to sell through, which is good. It gets you closer to thinking about the customer. But both sell in and sell through are both aggregate level data. So in contrast to the disaggregated data that you and I have been talking about before, mm-hmm. you know, we were looking at sales as a stream. A million units sold the day, 500,000 sold the next day, 300,000. And there's no heterogeneity in the customers in that. It's just a number. A million, 500, you know, 400. And so you can't really see any differences in the customers except for when they buy. Mm-hmm. Actually, looking at when they buy using the sell-through data was pretty powerful because we started to see in the video game industry, we have very big drops. Between the first and second week, there's usually a 70% drop in sales wow. for most wow. games. And then that kind of continuing long tail. So you get these really big drops from one to the other. But that's all aggregate. And so you can't really see who or why Why does it look like that? Is it the same players from one Madden game to the next? So from Madden 15 to Madden 16, for example, are those different players that showed up in that first week or different ones? Who are they? Really hard to tell how much they paid. And then really for us, I think the problem with that aggregate data and that time frame was it was hard to tell how much they played, which is probably the most important metric for us. So the big shift after I kind of got done working on demand planning was to shift the company from, or to shift myself really first from looking at the aggregate level data of sell through and start looking at the player level data that was coming out. So the Xbox 360 and the PS3 were really the first fully online consoles. I see. And that gave us that online registration and play data that we've never really looked at before. And that also kind of corresponded with the time when I was looking to change jobs. (laughs) (laughs) So so I did the same thing I'd done at Nissan, and I pitched the existing CEO and management team that I should start a group looking at this new data set that we had on customer registration and use data. Mm -hmm. And they said, sure, Zach, that sounds good. We want you to stay in the company. You're a smart guy. We'll let you do that. You and one other person can go work on it. And so we went and started looking at this data that the company had been storing because it needed for registration purposes to know whether you were allowed to play the game, basically. And from that data, we started to see like everything opened up 
And once we started looking at individual level customer player data, we could see things like, wow, all those people that showed up in the first week were the same people that showed up in the first week the previous year. Now, I just want to call out here that not everybody was playing Xbox 360 and PS3. You only had no. a small sample, or I don't know if it was necessarily small, but you had a portion of yeah. individual player data. Did you have to work around that to say, you know, that it's worth analyzing this portion of data? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because those were the early days of those consoles. So it was certainly not all of the data that the company had. It, it had a lot of aggregate level data. I mean, we were still selling games on the PlayStation 2 and on the Wii during that time and the NDS. We had a lot of different consoles in the market. And some of those we got better data from or less, but it was pretty sparse. I mean, now it's funny because I think about all the work we did back in those days, back in those days, seven years ago or so. We won't even use that data anymore. <laughs> Actually, my team, we will only go back probably five years usually now in terms of data quality because that old data that we learned a lot on actually we think of as a poor enough quality that we won't use it in our modern in <laughs> using the modern techniques that we use but we learned a lot it was certainly sampled it was new customers it was a different set of customers than what we had had before but we saw some really interesting things and just really opened up our eyes about wow there's a lot more going on underneath this stream of sales data that we had been getting that could help us. Can you um, share what some of those interesting things were that you saw early? Yeah, well, I, mean, I think the simple ones, which we're still, to be honest, mining in lots of ways, but is that idea that players come back from one year to the next, and they tend to do that based on how much they played the previous game. Hmm. So, you know, if you buy Madden, 18 this year and play it for, you know, a hundred hours or play it 50 times or whatever the number is, your likelihood to buy the next year's game is actually really high. And mm -hmm. it makes sense. Of course, our players, you know, aren't masochists. They continue to do something because they like it because it's enjoyable. And when they enjoy something, their likelihood to want to do it the next year is high. <laughs> And that really shifted the company. It was a huge, I mean, that idea is a big change, actually, because the company had been in this place where we made games as products, we marketed them and then pushed them out, and then they were done. And that's the way the games industry had operated. But this data and that starting to be that realization that really we were kind of in a subscription service with our sports games, for example, without it being a subscription, it's a non-contractual subscription where they could come in and out each year and whether they bought the next one was highly related to whether they enjoyed the last one. And so my realization was a bunch of things, but one of them was, wow, our product investment and engagement with our players over the longer term of our game, rather than the first week that they buy it is really required to make the company grow, improve our retention. And ultimately we weren't calling it this at that point, but the CLV literature had certainly infected me, let's say. <laughs> and I was thinking about like, wow, this is how we increase our customer lifetime value is by building games that people enjoy for longer and can engage with for longer. And then their likelihood to buy the next game goes up. And over time, we unpacked that in a bunch of ways, but that became a real big shift. The first place that it took hold really was in marketing, actually. So it's interesting because right about the time I started this group, another year or two after I started the group, 
the company was going through a bit of a crisis. So we were actually in a console transition period between the end of the, the days with the kind of now like I started my group in the middle of the PS3 and 360 console cycle, and that was starting to age out. Sales were starting to slow, and the company was having a hard time. We hadn't really transitioned to making, I think, great games. We were still thinking of them as products. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a huge portfolio of games at that time that a lot of weren't working very well. And so we went through a massive number of layoffs, shutting down studios. And one of the big issues at the time was actually around marketing. We were spending a huge amount of our revenue on marketing and sales. And so one of the first places that we got to apply that was with the marketing space. So um, when you say the first place it took root was in marketing, and you have this example of you've got hundreds of games and you're spending a large percentage yeah. to get to marketing. Did you take the CLV concept to all the departments and say, you know, here's a really interesting finding to product, to sales, to any other avenue? Or was it more like, it was kind of quietly mentioned and then marketing just was the obvious hook. How much did you have to shop it around to get adoption? Yeah, I think it's more path dependence. I mean, unfortunately, I don't know that I have a great story there of like me being really brilliant and coming up with the right place to put it. But I think what happened in all honesty is I've always had this philosophy of wanting to use data to have an impact on the company. And I could see that there was a lot of heat around the marketing question at that point. And those initial findings about what was driving customer purchase had such huge implications to marketing that the two of those things combined just sent me right there. And that's where we focused. I mean, I certainly was showing around the data to other people and they were interested, but the implications weren't quite as clear. And to be honest, I hadn't thought them through as much as I have since then. So I think the marketing place was just, you know, it was a really hot place to strike first and something that the company had to fix. Got it. And so that became a, the place that we focused all of our energy. And I see this with analysts all the time now, but a little bit of my own naivete then was that if I deliver these models and ideas to the company, then clearly it'll change the way the company operates. But even though we got lots of traction in marketing, we actually had to do a ton of work to change marketing in order to operate based on these principles. That was, you know, a really a multi-year organizational and structural change around marketing that before we got to really greatness there that we have now. Well, that sounds like a great transition because, you know, okay. it sounds like the point that having customer lifetime value calculated is not nearly the same as taking action on it, right? So maybe tell us a little bit more about why people should care once they calculate these numbers. How does the transition look or perhaps what were some of the ways that the action rolled out for you? Yeah, I mean, for us, there was another thing that happened around the same time as all of this, which is we bought a company called Playfish, which was a company that made games on the Facebook platform. And that platform was a free-to-play model. So it meant that you had people that could come and play the game without ever paying you. And then a small portion of the players were also payers. And that free-to-play model dictates a radical change in the way you market also. So it quickly implies that 
you can spend a lot of marketing money, but a huge portion of the people that are coming in are negative ROI. And it's okay to spend over the top marketing money to get people excited because people playing the game is important for a social game. There's a lot of value in them, even if they don't pay you, but you want to really use your marketing dollars to the best effect. And that means you need to find people that are likely to pay or certainly likely to play for a long time. It's actually kind of a funny concept because it's really old in marketing, right? Mm -hmm. Market to people that are going to like your product. <laughs> Find the ones that are going to enjoy it. Don't go out and spend a bunch of marketing money on people that aren't going to enjoy your product. So it's, it's not a new concept to marketing, but the CLV work gave us a tool set that enabled us to really actualize it. What's funny looking back is to do that though, we ended up pulling away a lot of our digital marketing away from our agency. Ultimately, we parted ways with our agency. We had to build up a whole internal media buying capability at EA. We had to build up our own media strategy group, build data systems to support all of that. And CLV was actually a small portion, but in order to action CLV, we couldn't share all that data with an external agency. We had to build all those things up ourselves. And we had to be able to buy it and have that information in our own database in order to do that. And so it required a huge change in the way we marketed and a cultural change too, because previously we had very poor attribution. We had very poor understanding. We were just trying to sell the units. So we didn't really think about which customers were going to pay us or what their long-term value was with the company. So, you know, there was a lot of cultural change that had to take place in marketing to adopt the idea that what we want is to make the right game and then find people that are going to love that game and get them into it, as opposed to blanket the world with marketing and hope that you get somebody that pays for it. Uh, you know, that's um, so a that, perfect example of what we still see companies doing is the, what we always call it spray and pray. If I yeah. run enough volume, or I sometimes call it uh, quantity marketing instead of quality yeah. marketing, it's really yeah. tough for marketers to make that shift. And I can appreciate the yeah. cultural change you must have been working against because to suddenly yeah. say we're not going to market to this huge volume had to cause a lot of consternation internally for people who are like, oh, is that going to work? If you pull back. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, we did it piecemeal over a few years, backing off and changing. But I mean, it also meant, you know, I think at our height of spending on marketing, we're spending 22% of revenue on marketing, which is a huge number. And, you know, that year talking about volume marketing, we bought a Super Bowl ad, an NFC playoff ad, an NBA finals ad, a World Series ad. Wow. <laughs> you know, like every major sporting event, we had an ad at for something and, you know, and a host of other high prominence ads. And then we were also spending on billboards and on print advertising, all these things that had like huge audiences, but really low targetability, mm -hmm. really low ability to, to discriminate between customers that are really going to want to play this game versus aren't. And so that just generated that. We were a huge marketing machine, but the problem was we were just way overspending. At the time, frankly, we were overspending to make games that weren't so great. And marketing was getting expensive, primarily because I think we weren't investing as much of it into the games, which is a pretty bad cycle for a company. You've lost touch with your customers. You're overspending on marketing to try to move your product. And our financials were going down. Our stock price hit an all-time low of like $11. And we were in really dire straits. And what's really interesting to me is that all kind of happened right a couple years or maybe even a year and a half into the time where I had finally got my hands on this data, switched jobs. And I was like, oh, 
I see what's going on. This is really clear to me. So I had this like weird insight at just the right time for the company to really start to dig in and do it. And so it's quite a, a harrowing and interesting time. So we shifted all of those people in marketing around and how we bought and exited our agency, built a bunch of new systems and started bringing down marketing costs pretty dramatically. I think we cut it like six or seven points in the first year Wow! Um, and eventually got it down below 12%, which is hundreds of millions of dollars being both dropped to the bottom line and able to be invested back in the product, which is where we should be investing our money. Exactly, exactly. But to be fair, during this time, didn't EA also get a new CEO around this point? Yeah, that's right. So kind of as we hit the bottom there, our old CEO left and the new CEO, uh, Andrew Wilson, came in and put in a new group of leaders. And Andrew has always been really, really a player first guy. He had led a studio, the FIFA studio, for a while and led all of sports for a while. He and I had worked very closely together during those years. So these ideas that I had fit really well with his expectation of where we needed to change the company. And he built on his first few weeks in the job of the CEO, he shifted one of our core pillars to player first which is we need to do things to support our players, to invest in the products, to make sure that people are having fun with our games. He went out on the street and said, our primary metric that we're going to run the company on is not top line sales. Uh, that's important. It pays the bills. It keeps us active as a company. But our really important metric is how much do people play the games. And if they play the games a lot, they'll come back, they'll buy more games, they'll spend more money, and we need them to enjoy our games. That's the first job. And so that was his big shift, and that fit really well with what I had been learning in the disaggregate data. And so he and the new management team, you know, invested in our group and in analytics and data science and research in order to help facilitate that. So a huge growth from what we were doing in marketing and changing marketing, then we quickly transitioned into the product side and working on products. Well, let's talk some more about those products and some of the levers or the tools that you have to work with. As I understand it, your team has access to in-game behavioral data, traditional consumer research, perhaps some of your own lab work, obviously the online advertising and media data. Maybe there's even more data streams that you have. How do you use all these streams to affect the way that Electronic Arts does business? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two good examples of that. We definitely use all of that information. And actually, the way I think about it is, is that our customers are like diamonds. If you look at one face of a diamond, one facet, you can't really see either the quality of it or other, any other information about it. You really need to look at all the facets of a diamond. And the way that I try to do that is with all these different points of view. So the behavioral data of what people are doing in games Talking to them in our lab or in our consumer focus groups tells us what they think about the games or the marketing. So we get, you know, in more research terms, we get revealed preferences in what they're doing in the game, and we get stated preferences from what they tell us about that. And then we also see their activities online and through surveys, how they're thinking about competitors and other games in our space. And so all of that together gives us a full picture of 
or a fuller picture, let's say, of our consumers' both wants and actions. And actually, some of the most interesting things is where those things might not line up. That's always actually a quite an interesting space where people are saying one thing and doing another. You know there's something good in there. So I won't talk about those because those are some of our best insights. I won't give those ones away. But I think one of the best examples of how all these things come together was some work we did in launching Battlefield 1. So Battlefield 1 is one of our biggest games. It's a console, first-person shooter, and we've been in a battle for years with Call of Duty, which is our, a game from one of our competitors. And our games are pretty differentiated, but they're still in the same space. And one of the things that, although we had shifted who we market to, we had never really, and we invested a bunch more money in the game, so the quality of the games was going up. But what we had never done was think about shifting money from marketing to our products themselves. I mean, in terms of with a specific goal. So we made a pretty bold decision in the couple of years before we launched Battlefield 1 that we were going to continue to invest in Battlefield 4, which was the predecessor. Don't ask me about the name. Battlefield 4 was the previous game. So we, we decided to invest more money in the previous game and drive engagement and elder gameplay and really the fun of the game much longer than we normally would. The traditional, I would say, cycle in the industry has been to ramp down your investment in the games as you're going into the next game. And we did the opposite in this case. So we actually took money out of our marketing budget and some money from the R&D side. And we invested in building new levels to the game, more content for the game, fixing some stuff that was not working as well that we knew customers had issues with. And then we started dropping the price of the game and making more of the content that had been paid free, all with the goal that we would boost the engagement in that product, knowing that if people had a great time playing that game, their likelihood to buy the next game was going to be very high. Was um, Battlefield 1 got, out at this time? or So were they both No, it wasn't flight? out yet. Okay, it wasn't out yet. No, got it wasn't it. out yet. So the Battlefield 4 was still the primary product, but we started this whole campaign, which we called Road to Battlefield, about 12 months before the launch of the new game. And it was really not even talking about the next game. We were intentionally marketing the next game without talking about it and investing in the old game. <laughs> it's like Chevrolet marketing a new Corvette by telling you they're going to upgrade your tires on the old Corvette. Yeah. And not even telling you the new Corvette's coming out. <laughs> <laughs> But it, it all stems from that idea of lifetime value that, you know, customers are in it with you for the long term. And if you keep their engagement up, then they're going to want to continue to pay you and want to continue to engage. I mean, what was really great for us was we went back to this game that had been out for two or three years and we did a bunch of consumer work to figure out what people wanted. We ran what we call a customer test environment so that they were actually having input in the development process of those modes and things that were going into Battlefield 4. We were learning things about what we needed to put into Battlefield 1. And it was this great virtuous cycle. And then we were driving up engagement and activity. So we brought in a lot of new customers at the end of the Battlefield 1 time period in order to then hopefully move them over to Battlefield 4. 
and it was highly successful for us. I mean, I think it's hard to say exactly what the return on those dollars that we invested in the old product were, but we know when we track those customers that we brought in and brought back to the old product, had a multiple times, two to three times higher probability to convert to the next game than people that hadn't engaged in that product after we'd reinvested in. And so for us, we built up Battlefield 1 by building up the previous game. And it was a combination of all those things, research about the games, research about the customers, lab work, and really working hard to understand and build up the old product in a way that the new one would benefit from it. I love this example. And in the end, Battlefield 1 was the biggest game in the industry on a global basis. We were larger than Call of Duty for the first time ever. It was the largest shooter that we've ever produced and sold more units than EA's ever sold in a single game outside of our sports franchises. So it was a huge success for the company. Nice. Um, That's a great celebration. It's interesting from a mathematical percentage, what we were really doing was going back to the old and, you know, as part of a lot of CLV models, our recency and frequency ideas, depending on how you implement them. And what we were really doing was investing in the old game to increase frequency and frequency, right? Which then increased that propensity to convert. Just like the math and everything you learn, you know, now in school would teach you fits work great. It was a big shift and a huge gain for us as a company. Yeah, yeah, but it's all calculated around the customer. It's not calculated around yep. the product, and I think that's that's, right. the, that's the big key. Now, I also want to mention that you're going to be speaking as a keynote, thank you, at our Customer Centricity Conference coming up at Wharton, San Francisco, May 17th and 18th, and I hope at that time we can dive into some more examples because this is just such a, a rich story of how CLV is used to pivot a company and to leverage really good good data into impact. I love these stories. I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be a great conference. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, a, it's exciting again. Let's move down to people who want to take action. So let's say I've loved these stories and I want to become more customer or player centric. Now, standing where you are now and looking backwards, do you have a couple steps or insights that you can share with people about how they should approach it? Maybe some important learnings? Yeah, I think there are kind of four things in retrospect thought back about what worked, about what we've done. And we talked about the first one a little bit, but I'll just say it again. I think I lucked into it, but with maybe other people can learn from my luck, is connecting your CLV projects and your customer projects to really the big decisions of the company. We started on marketing, which at the time was a crucial thing for the company to figure out, and that helped a lot. That built our credibility. That had a big impact on the company, and it made the company willing to invest in the analytics and and customer data space. And then, you know, very quickly, we transitioned to another big key driver, which is which products to make and what should be in those products and how do we build live service. And that was another place where the analytics work really well, but was also another key decision. So I think that's the first one is mm-hmm. connect your data and analysis and your CLV projects to real outcomes and the right questions. I think a lot of people come in and start with the model first and then try to figure out where they can apply it. I think you want to work a little backwards from that or at least in parallel and figure out what are the real questions in the company today and how do these things help inform that. Mm -hmm. The second one that we did is we invested a lot in our own capital. So we certainly worked with outside consultants and groups, but 
I think you have to build up some of your own capital in, in your own company and space. So you need to hire your own data scientists. You need to build your own data capital and invest time in thinking about how you're going to use that. And then you need to build up your own intellectual capital. You know, my team reads and contributes to papers on CLV. We work with Pete Fader directly. He's come in, you know, at various times, especially in the early days, and actually reviewed the models that we were using. But we did that in a way that allowed our team to learn and grow and develop on their own, not just outsourced it to somebody completely. And I think that's a really important way to do it. Use outside expertise, but build up your own intellectual capital as an organization. And then third, as you get past those initial projects, you have to think systematically about scale and how are you going to influence, you know, in our case, there are thousands of product decisions that are made in the company every day. You know, how should this piece evolve? Should this feature be on or off the cut list for the game? And and we had to scale our analytics, our CLV tool sets, all of those pieces, the research in order to be able to do that. So you have to really think systematically about scale pretty early on, even kind of before you start scaling, because otherwise you end up chasing it. And then the last one, it's a funny thing about even just the basics of calculating CLV crosses boundaries. So just in the story that you and I have been talking about, you know, I had to interact with our sales organizations, our marketing organizations, our product organizations, our finance organizations. And if I had stuck in one of those silos, we would have never had the impact that this thinking has had at EA. You have to be willing to cross all those boundaries. And sometimes you're kind of stepping on people's turf and gets a little messy. But if you want to drive this kind of change, then you have to be willing to cross those boundaries. And you also need, I think, along with that, some executive support mm -hmm. to allow you to cross those boundaries. But that's really where you need. Often, I think people think they need executive support for legitimacy. I haven't found that to be the need. What I need executive support for is that I'm going to cross boundaries and talk to people who really don't know why I'm talking to them. Mm -hmm. And I need the executive support to give me those entrees, um, not to prove out the logic of the models or the underlying ideas, but more just that it's okay for these guys to cross over. And that has been a really important part for us. But I think sometimes I see people in a marketing organization or in a finance organization doing CLB or in a product organization doing CLB. And I think that really limits your ability to impact the organization and be effective because CLV is something that crosses over between all of those things, both at the conceptual level of customer centricity and at the actual implementation of a model crosses over across all those things. And so it's really important to be willing to go, you know, sit in somebody's office and explain to them what you're doing, even though they're not in your department, not in your organization, probably not even under your executive. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. We see that all the time. No doubt. So we've covered a lot of ground and let me attempt to summarize a little bit and then you can tell me if I've missed anything. But we started out sure. with your background and then we went right into, you know, why care about the process behind standing up CLV. And what I liked best here was we talked about it. there's many stages that people can go through. We didn't actually talk about that as much, but I've covered that in a podcast previously, the different stages of growth and elevating the yeah. significance of CLV within your organization 
basically means that you're going to affect major changes to the way the organization operates. And that requires a certain amount of flexibility. I think the timing of your new CEO was probably instrumental in getting that flexibility in place because it's, you know, it's time for a fresh outlook and that's a good way to escort in CLV. So, you know, your... I mean, there's no, no reason to waste a good crisis, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, putting the application on media and marketing immediately, I think was a smart move as well. So definitely a great way to not just save costs, which really wasn't what it was all about. It was more about how do you drive quality in the long term by shifting the costs away from those non-targeted channels. And then we move down to what kind of impact. And this is where that player first mentality really kicked in. And you were talking about the application into the product, particularly with the Battlefield 1 and the Battlefield 4, 4 being the older product, and the ability to leverage the CLV to encourage satisfaction and happy players, engaged players who want to come back, you're almost taking like a resort or, you know, like a, uh, like I go to a hotel or I go to Disney World, you're almost taking a, a different mentality than the product altogether, like hospitality mentality. That's what I was searching for. Yeah. And we actually, interesting that during that time period, we talked a lot about Disney and how customers stayed with Disney for their whole lifetimes and introduced their kids to it. That was actually quite inspirational for us. We had some Disney people come in and talk to us at that time, and we were thinking about exactly that. It's funny you mention it. Oh, it's not my imagination then. That's good. I am yeah. one of those people who have introduced my kids to Disney. We're second generation Disney. And it's funny, you know, you just keep passing it down. It's like a rite of passage. And that why not that with the EA games too? And yeah, that's... that was exactly our kind of insight. That combined with the data and looking around, that was the place where we went very early. So I think that's exactly the right summary of how the company started to shift about how it thought about players. You can't imagine Disney thinking about like, oh, I'm just going to launch a new movie on Cinderella without them thinking about how does that relate to their other Cinderella properties? How does it relate to what's going to happen in the park? And how is this going to fit in the lineup of all the Cinderella movies they've made before? You just would, they would never do that, of course. But we were, you know, in the bad period, we were launching games and just launched them. Mm -hmm. And so this was a huge shift to think about this kind of much longer time frame. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Makes perfect sense. And then we talked about what people should do. And you gave us four really good nuggets about connecting the data analysis and the CLV to the right questions, which kind of ties into the number four, which is about being unafraid to cross functional boundaries. Because when you're tying it to those right questions, you're also going to need to stretch across your pocket within the organization. And that's where the executive support becomes so helpful to create that bridge. But I loved what you said that it wasn't all about just providing legitimacy. It's really about creating a comprehensive view, which is what the executive is charged with. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, it's almost like uh, I tell people this is you should think like an executive. I think if you're running an analytics group or building one, or even if you're just the lone data scientist somewhere, I think your purview should be the whole company. That's how you should think. It might not be where you're housed or who's doing your review or those kind of things. But if you think company-wide and player first in our case, I mean, I would say it's been amazing what we've been able to accomplish as a company by thinking as one organization and, and trying to think player first throughout that, build things that people are going to enjoy for a long time. It's really 
paid dividends for the company. I mean, we still get it wrong at times, for sure. But I think the benefit for the company has been a huge turnaround and a lot more happy customers for us. So. Uh, it's a fantastic success story. Thank you, Zach. So as always, links to everything we discussed are at ambitiondata.com slash podcast. Zach, I really want to thank you for joining us today every time we talk. It's such a pleasure, and I, I always enjoy it. Uh, me too. Thank you very much. I, I love this stuff, so <laughs> it's easy for me to talk about. Excellent. Yeah. And remember, everyone, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. This is not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is Allison. Just a few things before you head out. Every Friday, I put together a short bulleted list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. I actually call this email the signal. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are doing amazing work building customer equity. If you'd like to receive this nugget of goodness each week, you can sign up at ambitiondata.com and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoy the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.